0: Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to
1: the Horror Vanguard. And hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Socialist Seance. This is part of our ongoing series where Ash and I sit down with um, thinkers, theorists, organisers, activists on the ground and try and give you more insight into what is happening in what we have half jokingly, half seriously uh, been calling the spooky left Uh, So uh, Ash and I have summoned our our collective dark energy and have uh, managed to hold and bind uh, Nesta from Black Banner Magic (laughs) is joining us today. Uh, Also, uh, Nesta from our Lords of Chaos episode, which uh, is very well regarded by the audience. Uh, So if you have not already listened to that episode, please do uh, go and listen to that. Uh, But Nesta, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back. Um, and speaking of the Lords of Chaos episode, there was a bit in that where uh, we couldn't remember a character's name, and it was bugging me that it wasn't on the official uh, Horror Vanguard record. Uh, it was the driver of Varg we were confused about. Uh, yeah. who oh, my he was God, driving. yeah. It was Blackthorn. Uh, that was his stage name, and he actually went to prison as well for that murder for a while.
0: Let let this be the first and only official correction we ever issue to a podcast <laughs> episode.
1: Yeah, uh, that's what I like about this show that we we will issue corrections over the truth, the character details from all of the films that we talk about. Um, but yeah, if if uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, please do um go check it out. But we are not talking about a film this week. Uh, this is a chance for us to. Uh, sit down and have a more in-depth conversation about uh, politics and practice and organizing and aesthetics. Um, So let's just jump in. Ash, where where do you want to start? Um, Well, I think a good place to start for this uh, would be to
0: congratulate Nestor for being the first repeat guest so uh uh, congratulations um i'm inserting a clapping sound effect and perhaps an audience (laughs) cheering here so uh, uh kudos so outside of outside of your fantastic work at uh one of my favorite uh podcasts black banner magic uh what what is kind of like the the larger like occult, goth, left aesthetic thing you're thinking about and you're working on. That's a very broad, intentionally an overly broad question, I suppose. Yes,
2: I I do paint in broad strokes quite often, and I'm accused of not being very granular quite often. So, I'm glad to just give broad sweeping strokes about an entire uh, podcast and lifestyle genre. Um, But to get a little bit more specific like the the occult uh, deals in like the liminal like it's almost entirely based in liminal spaces uh, spaces that are uh, neither here or there but always uh, always already here to put it that way um, but like with uh, with many of uh, horror movies and like gothic literature it's oftentimes like that same feeling that same liminal space where there's something there that you can't physically touch you can't describe entirely the the shapeless mass that is right behind you Um, and you get that feeling a lot uh, in rural places as well which I've almost entirely up until the last few years lived in rural small towns uh, throughout the Midwest and that presence is always there that uh the vast openness but always feeling like something is just right there behind your shoulder um and i think those two uh combine well with uh the the liminal spaces that we need to like uh when people say they need to hold space for a political project like if it's if it's not like the, the state project where the state is something tangible and uh, uh, physical that can act on you, then like holding a space for an hour or 10 days, say like a, a tree sit walking uh, a pipeline, that's holding space in defense of those trees, in defense of the land, in defense of the people against that encroaching pipeline or holding, uh, holding space, like, uh, squatting a building, taking over a building. Those are temporary liminal spaces. Um, that's something that I've been trying to, uh, work through with my less than educated, uh, brain <laughs> to like, I know there <laughs> are people that have, uh, studied it far more than I have, but just li- the, the lived experience of being in that constant liminal uh, space which also since we're recording in the official spooky season now uh, everybody gets to like don that costume and live in the the liminal um, but I live it all the time I'm always there <laughs> the uh, <laughs> it's the like the the changing of the season the uh, autumn or uh, excuse me the summer into autumn that's like the the liminal uh season changing where all the halloween horror stories kind of culminate like the the dying the decaying trees uh uh the chlorophyll leaving the leaves and they fall off and they fall to the ground they decay they become mulch for the ground etc um that's that's a very gothic sort of trope uh the decay in the gothic the The decay of animal bones and the leaves of trees and the the sharp ends of harvested corn stalks, like sticking out of the ground, like knives. That if you happen to be running through a field barefoot, uh, you might hurt yourself, which (laughs) probably explains some scars on my feet. Um, It actually does explain a scar on my leg from jumping a, a barbed wire fence out of a field because some friends and I were partying out in uh, a recently harvested field and heard gunshots so immediately start running and it's not like urban gunshots where it's interpersonal violence or gunshots from uh, police that you it kind of echoes in the, the buildings and you can't really differentiate what, which direction it's coming from. But if you're out in an open field and you hear pop, 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 that's definitely directed at you or possibly... You're in the path of uh, a hunter's rifle, and neither one of those are going to be good. But anyway, uh, running through the, this field, I tried to jump over a barbed wire fence and caught my left leg on the inside. And that was quite a while ago, and I still have like a six-inch scar from my jumping over the, the fence. And since I wasn't supposed to be in the field, wasn't supposed to be underage drinking, Uh, at that time um, (laughs) I didn't tell my parents that I possibly needed a tetanus shot so luckily my tetanus booster was up to date and I didn't get lockjaw or anything but I had to hide this big bloody oozy leg for a few weeks until it started to heal up and since I didn't get stitches now I have a huge uh, a huge harvest goth mark on my leg that that feeling uh, that decay uh around like the, the changing in the seasons it always felt familiar like um it was familiar and comforting because uh didn't really know why like for a long time just oh that's where i grew up so i have these sentimental feelings for it but then uh, thinking more about what the liminal spaces like that mean uh, like it was something where um it didn't require words to explain, but I could see that it had it had history, it had the future of all uh, material that would be decayed in that area. I don't know. I guess the, the decay is perceived somewhat... Perceived as a, a failure of, like, maintaining, like, maintenance. Like, if, uh, if a city is decaying, then you have urban blight and that brings down the property value or whatever the, the capitalist excuse is. But in rural areas, the the decay is just like cyclical, the growth and death of uh, the crops or the, I guess the harvest of the crops. Um, but that, that failure of maintenance to the point that we convince ourselves that we have to over cultivate to the death of like uh, the, the biosphere, the the ecosphere that, um, becomes like a, a monoculture where we we're rotating um one crop for another every three years so you have uh corn for two years switch it to soybeans for two years and then just all the uh the microorganisms in the soil either die off or they they become uh so i guess so generic that there's no uh there's no biodiversity left in the, the soil and that's where like erosion takes away the topsoil etc um, and it, like in urban areas even like uh, development um, like highway development displaces animals the the pathways of animals and some places uh, the the development is uh, rectified so to say uh, by by building animal crossings which is just like a material uh, managerial way of like saying okay nature here's your your one little plot please cross here mm-hmm. stop going in the road because people are hitting you and dying and wrecking their cars so it, it's a weird managerial demand that the animals fall in line with uh, human civilization because it's costing us a lot of money to construct this bridge for you you ingrateful bastards um that's a major like mental disconnect that humans have, uh, where they're they insist on breaking with quote unquote nature in favor of progress, which nature is the entire earth, the, the, the whole planet is nature. We exist in nature no matter where we are, but this uh, bicameral view that we have human civilization and nature um, makes the weird uh, false dichotomy where. We're always in that liminal uh, nature space. It's just some of it is more terrorized with buildings than others.
0: Yeah, I, that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the point about like... There's one thing I've been thinking about lately is as, as we kind of try to, I don't know, avoid total climate apocalypse, Mad Max, Hell World... And we we work on prefiguring and shaping that like something I've been thinking a lot about is like, okay, so how do we live right with the earth in a way that intermeshes with society as we have it right in a way that's not like the near genocidal and prim call to like destroy all technology, including language. And like like you're you're absolutely right about that, like. The, this this absolute neoliberal managerial impulse, right? Because I was I was talking with some some people recently about like how how hunting is is essentially just like a a really bizarre exercise in like wealth and neoliberal gain, and and it's like the the counter argument I always hear is like, well, how are we going to manage the deer populations? When like you know, the logical conclusion is like I don't know, maybe we we stop killing the apex predators off to make our shopping malls safer or something like that.
1: There are cu- there are a couple of things that you said there that I thought were really interesting. Um, I, I the point about what is the relationship of kind of society to decay, uh, which is both both a kind of dialectical one and a very gothic one, right? The things that fall into decay often. Uh, abandoned buildings or other or other kinds of um, uh, structures definitely become infused with a kind of gothic melancholy and and uh, through looking back at them it's often possible to see something of a kind of utopian impulse towards a potentially better future, uh, which is something that Benjamin uh, Walter Benjamin writes about quite a lot in his yes. kind of romanticism. I,
2: I actually had that in my notes. Something oh, like I'm, I'm
1: so, so I'm so glad I brought up Benjamin. <laughs> um, and I also really like I really like the the term harvest goth uh, as a way of living living dialectically of living with the with the constant cycle of um, of death and regeneration, which is always and kind of irreducibly outside the logic of capitalism the seasons don't depend upon cycles of economic production right they they are what they are um, and and of course living in, in that way kind of reconnects us to the fact that um, we are not external to the natural world it isn't something that we are uh, able to put our mark on and control uh, because we've seen what that looks like and that looks like ecocide, that looks like the destruction of, of the biosphere, but actually we are within and entangled within the natural world. And I think you've you've hit upon a couple of really, really fascinating ideas there.
2: Yeah, the, uh, uh, Walter Benjamin uh, quote, or I guess uh, more idea, but the quote of the irresistible decay where you can hmm. see history in... Reality, like the uh, talking about the allegory on stage, uh, being present in reality as the form of the ruin, and Mm. the ruin shows history as a a physical setting in uh, in our lived lives. So, yeah, I think Walter Benjamin doesn't get enough credit from the spooky left because he's a very goth boy.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely, Uh hugely, hugely. Uh, If you are at all. If you are if you are at all uh interested in in benjamin and and his view on history which is kind of uh, it, to my mind anyway is like the base starting point for any serious like gothic marxism or gothic leftism uh you have to start with walter benjamin and particularly his writing about history i think is really important
2: and so the uh like the idea about how the, who will control the deer population if, if we just stop hunting deer? Well, that's the a weird thing to say when the majority of people that would be hunting deer also live in these like factory towns that my parents moved right. moved us all through right. uh, Iowa and Missouri and Kansas, um, just living in these small factory towns. Which those are predominantly the the same communities that go out and hunt deer. So you have Factory animal killing, and then like either subsistence uh, deer hunting, which uh, like the fall would always be time for mm-hmm. deer chili, but mm-hmm. um, you have just like mass slaughter of animals within a contained uh, facility, and then because you're not getting paid enough or because you uh, do enjoy sport hunting, you go out and shoot animals on the weekend as well, and it's, that's a weird. Double concept of it's like yeah my entire life revolves around killing animals, Um, but uh, my parents worked in like pork packing factories and beef factories and the the smell of just dead animal on them all the time um, wasn't actually enough to uh, send me uh, vegan or vegetarian as a child but then I worked in a, a pork packing Uh, facility when i was in my early 20s and that's when i went vegetarian because not just smelling it on my parents like associating the smell of dead animal nasty carcasses with my parents didn't do it enough but smelling it and seeing it and doing it myself it's like oh yeah this is actually really fucking disgusting i don't want to take part in this anymore
0: yeah that's actually that's actually something i think about like I mean, like embarrassingly, that's something I think about like maybe two or three times a week is like how much uh commodity fetishism has like specifically functioned to excise decay from our lives. And when we when we think about meat, you know, in or or animal products more more broadly, right? Like we like, you know, I, I bet like right there when I just said meat, you know, like the first things that's popping into our listeners' mind are like pre-packaged ballpark franks or like a pound of ground chuck or something and not not and not the the human cost of the labor that goes into it the fact that there's like you know like actual humans at a factory somewhere who are who are you know engaged in this really visceral and horrifying labor and the fact that like there's a clear animal and
1: like quote-unquote natural cost to this as well like the, those decay elements of Well, are I mean, this goes to this strikes at a really foundational point about capitalism, right? Capitalism wishes us, ideologically, wants us to think that it is immutable, that it's a kind of law of the universe, and therefore you can't admit the possibility of a because decay is also a, a a sign of potential failure, of contingency, of um, uh, of the very constructedness of something so you can't have the idea that you can't admit that idea into the ideological superstructure that maintains capitalism because that also along with it comes the idea of of fragility of, of contingency of construction and uh, of potential failure right that's en- entropy is death that's, that's what capitalism wishes to uh, avoid
2: right and I think that the uh, the idea of having like the prepackaged uh, alienated from all labor meat that you can just pick up and buy in the store mm-hmm. That's a, I, I don't have any uh, anthropological uh, research to back this up but I think that is a Neolithic fear that we still have embedded in us because the the advent of uh, modern ad- agriculture or even primitive agriculture would be, Somewhere in the Neolithic era, and growing that food ourselves, um, uh, being able to survive on what we cultivate, is so far back in the the old timey human brain that uh, I think that's where like integral <laughs> primitives are trying to get back to. They're they're attempting to get back to th- that uh, that point of fear that was instilled in you that if you don't cultivate this you won't eat um but everyone else is trying to ignore that fear by saying oh well no this meat just shows up this these canned foods just show up and i go to the store and i get them that it's okay this will always continue we'll always have this um so i'd i'd be willing to have somebody correct me and say no that's absolutely stupid you're that's uh, evolutionary psychology bullshit uh, don't do that <laughs> but for the purposes of my argument I, I think there is that kernel of uh, neolithic fear that uh, either drags us back or very few people drags them back into that and prim state of mind like get rid of all society and all language so we can not be fearful anymore or just ignore it move forward run away from that fear
0: hmm yeah i I definitely think that these are you know if not uh, um evo psych you know proto-human fears they're definitely like the the competing and contrasting attitudes of our time right it's either it's either we find we find a way to actually like reintegrate with the natural world instead of like hyper exploiting it or we just finish the job of hyper exploiting it and have nothing left
2: when the uh the exploitation, I guess, from my standpoint, seeing my parents like move from town to town trying to find the, the better factory condition to work in, um, they were unionized at the time, but the union was toothless mm-hmm. because there were so many people just moving around the Midwest, going to different factories, that it didn't really matter if there was a, a strong labor movement. You could have this piecemeal like yeah you're in a union isn't that cool you get you get five dollar uh five dollars an hour more than that guy that's working over in that non-union place isn't that cool and there was no there was no class solidarity to say oh well yeah this is good but then what else keep moving it forward what else am i gonna get when's the factory gonna be owned by us and not just well thank you sir for giving me this union job instead of that non-union over there. I don't want to be with that guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that raises a very important point about the the limitations of, uh, firstly, reformism generally. Um, is, is it good that jobs were unionized? Yes, obviously. But you've also very kind of uh, concisely summarized some of the main problems with that because just uh, unionizing is not necessarily enough to actually uh, reform and reformulate the relationships of individuals to their work, right? That doesn't necessarily, uh, go far enough. Uh, and that's something like, like a lot of like, uh, Marxist and anarchist ecologists have been writing about in the last 20 or 30 years, especially, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. And the, uh, the, uh, I like to call it, um, <laughs> welcome to the desert of the real tree camouflage, <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> it's it's where uh the ambient waves of gray float in the wind. I don't that's that's an excerpt of the uh harvest goth uh anti-manifesto
1: that I'm working on uh just well, what, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. What um, you've you've used that term a couple of times, and I really love it. Um, and and uh, so 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 so, what do you what do you mean when you talk about harvest goths? What does that what does that look like? What What are you kind of trying to work out here?
2: Well, the the, uh, the idea, I guess, um, like I'm preaching to two very. Uh, well-researched and well-spoken uh, Gothic Marxist, so I don't need to explain to you what the Gothic is. But uh, Gothic literature, more often than not, would center on like the concerns of the aristocracy. You got the lords and the ladies, the counts, the doctors. Um, it's not too often that the the decay that is uh, in those stories, where whether or not it's like the rural or the falling uh, castle whatever um those stories aren't centered on the uh the working class uh, typically it's the upper class that are being acted upon by these uh, gothic spirits or these uh haunted landscapes and it's not to say that there aren't rich people out living in the country living the rural life but that's like a, a luxury escapism that uh it's not happenstance so um, living in like the rural uh, areas that I've lived in, where the, the idea that you like oh you live in a Hick town, so you got your shit kicker boots on and uh, you're coming from the the farm uh, or going to school straight from the farm that kind of stuff. Um, that's a I've always thought that was like a strange um, stereotype, even though people do uh cultivate that it's like a weird uh feedback loop of the basin superstructure where the the superstructure isn't really uh being built by anybody it's just kind of in that strange uh pop culture feedback loop like oh you live in the country here's what uh country boys only know chew dip uh plow fields eat hot chip and lie
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> or eat hot dip and lie i guess would be um but uh, like i've always been drawn to more like the the synth wave kind of music the uh, punk music um and i had friends that were too and uh, some of them lived on farms like uh some of my cousins still live on farms or uh, i guess they they inherited a uncle's farm or whatever i don't have much contact with him anymore but what i'm saying is uh like that country music video uh platonic ideal like alan jackson and his cowboy hat and uh, life preserver skiing behind his uh his speedboat that nobody that i knew really did that like it was uh go out into the field drink some beers and uh, blast uh, the cure or like rage against the machine and like that's not <laughs> the the country lifestyle I guess it's not, like country girls be like uh, listening to Slipknot I guess <laughs> but uh, <laughs> living in that, that uh, I guess the cultural aesthetic um, I did adopt like those clothing uh styles i guess because like didn't have too many like uh, didn't have like a macy's in storm like iowa population 800 um so like go to the dollar store or whatever uh like i think it was called pomida or something it was like a kmart off-brand thing and they have flannel shirts just everywhere they have camouflage all over everything just that's what i would wear but um didn't hunt I I've never been hunting so it's ironic that I I'm a vegan that wears hunting gear like a trying to camouflage myself within that uh, that dominant sphere of machismo it's like so um, the, the the harvest goth would be somewhat of a like a, a fashion aesthetic but also um, living in Living in decay and uh, the slow growth of uh, rural towns, because the the town I mentioned, Storm Lake, Iowa, when I lived there, I think it was like eight eight hundred or a thousand people that lived there. Um, and I looked up their Wikipedia page earlier today, and I think they have something like seventy five thousand people living there now. So even that small town when I lived there is. Grown immensely, so the, the factories are apparently doing well. There's probably more factories now, um, and with all that, uh, all that, I guess, somewhat wealth, but uh, I'm not sure who's getting that wealth. There's gonna be exploited classes. There's gonna be exploited people that are um, being like culturally uh, programmed to be. Oh, you live in this in this country town with i guess 75,000 people is not a country town anymore but um, the the people that would live on the the farms when i lived there like they weren't protected by any um, new deal uh, labor laws like the NLRB still does not um, protect farm workers and that also means you can have child farm workers like if your child uh, goes out and milks the cows or whatever, uh, drives the thresher machine. That that kid has no uh, has no labor protections. Not only is it a child laborer, but then if something happens, it's like oh, well, there was an accident on the farm. Johnny got his arm stuck in the thresher. Whoops, that, that sucks. We should have taught him better. Um, I think that that's more of like the the uh, the horror side of it is like oh. he got his arm caught in the thrasher. But, um, the, the, I guess the simpler or maybe not simpler uh, idea of that is that, um, the automation of industrial labor like that, um, a child can drive a thrasher because it's now it's mostly like GPS driven. There's even autonomous, uh, like, Uh, vehicles that you can use to do your crops like just play with a remote control uh, handheld set that you can drive instead of spending all day out in the field Um, and one of the uh, I guess I'll read one of the uh, statements of the the Harvest Goth uh, anti-manifesto that under late capitalism the agricultural constraint of the season is made irrelevant. It's uh, constant bounty of the market eliminates decay as a visceral reality and decay assumes the role of aesthetic and ornamental choice. And then there's a photo of a uh, real tree camouflage uh, inset on a GPS um, console inside of a thrasher uh, combine. So using the aesthetic <laughs> of the decay in your... $50,000 machine probably $150,000 machine um to have that that Harvest goth aesthetic i don't know uh, hopefully i can get this in better words than what i'm giving now you
0: know i think it, i think it sounds fantastic and i think you hit on a lot of a lot of really good points you know and like as as a fellow like camo wearing vegan I've always considered it's like, you know, the best way to pounce on the lettuce is to disguise myself as the (laughs) lettuce, be amongst them, and they will never know. But like, you know, one one of the things that you were saying that's really, really interesting to me is like, so I grew up in a trailer park that was like in between a scrapyard and a quarry and a cornfield. And like, so, so I definitely like, I definitely get that like the, the stereotype of people who live in like poor and rural areas does not at all like like because i mean like sure there are some people who like go out of their way to fit the fucking bill but you know it, it doesn't overlap but what i find what i found interesting as i like went on to move into like increasingly larger cities and more like suburban areas is that like there are people in those communities who will like do whatever it takes To to put on the costume of what like the television is telling you that like the rural working man should be like like I think like I I definitely know or knew guys who would like drive two hours out of their way to go shop at the farm and fleet because that was the the rugged aesthetic they wanted to portray when they had like uh, a three a three story home with a pool house.
1: Yeah, I think I think you've hit upon some really fascinating things. This this notion of of cultural superstructure, which is always kind of irreducibly tied up in uh, the 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 kind of totality of relations of production of a given society. This this notion of obsolescence and the way in which, uh, particularly rural. Uh, towns i think this is true of the states in particular can be can be kind of hollowed out and emptied of people and then uh that can also be a resource that that uh people who are um kind of forced out of urban centers can can kind of latch onto and you see that in in gentrification and other and other forms of kind of capitalist exploitation and expansion. Um, I think that compares really interestingly to to where I'm from. I'm from I'm from the northwest of England. Um, I, I'm from a former industrial centre, which in the in the back half of the 20th century, uh, the region that I'm from saw a massive collapse in the number of people living there as the industrialization hit. Um, and as the as the population of the country as a whole expanded, the population of the places that uh, of of where I was from and, and places like I was from just fell through the floor because you couldn't you couldn't you could not afford to live there anymore. And so uh, not only had entire communities been uh, de-skilled and, and de-industrialised, they'd just been declared obsolete now, and so they could be easily left behind Uh, in British politics. This often comes out as talking about uh, Northern white working class people. uh, And that's usually an excuse for right-wing politicians to push kind of pandering uh, racism under the guise of appealing to, to, to that kind of mythical figure. But I I think it's interesting how, how both of those experiences map onto capitalism's, uh, ideological refusal to accept the concept of obsolescence beyond that of a kind of hipster aesthetic.
2: Absolutely, in the uh, dimension of um, the, like the immigrant uh, forces uh, that would, or labor force that would be used in many of the uh, factory towns that I lived in, like when we first moved to one town, um, had out-of-state uh plates they'd expired on the car um so having this out-of-state license plate uh obviously being a a clear marker that you're not from the area and the license plate is expired because we hadn't yet got the new state plates and clearly can't go back to the old state and get them uh renewed um we got pulled over and my dad was driving um and he got arrested. Uh, I don't. I was only about ten. I don't know why he got arrested. Um, if if my behavior is any indication, it's probably because he was rightfully uh, a dick to the cop, and the cop probably didn't like that. So he got arrested. Um, uh, my mom went and bailed him out after dropping us off at a babysitter, and um, that just that one marker like uh showing that you're not of the community that you need to be punished for it. Um, soon after that there was a large influx of uh, Laotian immigrants to the the town we lived in and they also worked at the factory um and suddenly like I didn't put this together immediately but suddenly uh, there was less police interaction with us and more police interaction with them even though we, At the time, we lived in the same uh, trailer park and then moving uh, just like 20 minutes to a different town. But still, my parents worked in that town Um, like they lived in the same apartment building as we did. So when I look back on it, I noticed that the displacement of who was not allowed uh, by police force, by force of uh, control was uh, altered by the demographics and it it's like a weird chain of command of who gets the who gets to beat up who and i think that it really set me on my course of uh, hating cops and being a prison abolitionist
1: (laughs) (laughs) both both incredible things to be (laughs) i think i think that brings us on to something uh, really interesting, actually. Maybe, maybe what we can talk about next is talk about how you see this kind of cultural and political experience of growing up uh, in this kind of harvest goth mode of life. How, how, how do you see that connecting to things like prison abolition, things like, things like organizing, things like your, your own kind of political work on the ground?
2: Uh, well, I think that uh, it's like a, a, well, this is maybe a, too far of a stretch, but like a, a mushroom colony, like um, a mycelium, uh, that like mushroom uh, fungi is all connected underground. Like there's unseen uh, connections under the surface, but all we see are... Uh, mushrooms pop up over here and then 20 feet away over here and then a few feet away over here um, I think that those those two connections like uh, being interested in the the spooky left and also being uh, for the working class and against the state, against cops and the control functions that they have they're connected because the the idea that um like synthwave or uh like the um the punk and uh hard rock like the early 90s were they were somewhat giving those same uh vibes like the same anti-authoritarian rock and roll vibes i guess all rock has that sense but um like the, I guess the the mushroom thing would be like, there was this weird fad where, uh, mushrooms like cartoon mushrooms were a, a cool thing to have like you'd have like a, a t shirt with a mushroom on it or like, uh, candles shaped like mushrooms, and it was in reference to like psilocybin mushrooms like the, the magic mushroom uh, culture but, if you didn't do those drugs like if you didn't ingest these entheogenic uh plants you didn't actually have that full experience you didn't have the introspective trip that the the mushroom gives to you but you're being sold that uh that comical cartoon idea of here's a magic mushroom isn't that so cool and trippy and like you're getting nothing from that but when you connect the two like take a mushroom trip and then you see that oh uh, yeah you were trying to do like a cartoonish version of what it feels like to have a trip or well, connecting uh, my politics to the the music that I like or the, the aesthetic uh, fashion choices that I like then have uh, correlating concepts like um, the uh, a lot of the clothes that I have come from thrift stores, and that's not for aesthetic purposes. It's just because I don't feel comfortable um, buying a lot of new clothes that I know were made in subpar standard uh, conditions in, like, uh, Thailand or Guatemala. know that those people are being oppressed uh, through their their waged labor, and uh, being able to not somewhat participate in that, even though there's no ethical consumption in capitalism, being able to uh, lessen that a little bit is, I guess the, the same or similar as, um, running a, a community bail fund because I still need to have money in order to get people out of jail, but feeding that money into the system is also a net good because keeping people out of jail, um, I don't know. Kind of went all over the place with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that um, I really like your mycelium approach to this, right? Because I think that <clears throat> at least one of the one of the things that I'm coming to as like I read more into social ecology and um, you know books like Braiding Sweetgrass and stuff like that is that like anthropocentric ways of or methodologies of analysis and kind of like systemic viewpoints are, are very fundamentally skewed in a certain direction that I think the savvy listener will be privy to and like viewing viewing everything instead of as like these Dis- disconnected uh, selfish human entities moving in their own directions but instead as an interwoven network of s- interdependent systems kind of inherently predisposes us towards a-, a better more more socialist or egalitarian world and i definitely i'm picking up with your, what you're putting down yeah i
1: mean i think i think what you're talking about here is is the idea of of consciousness. Uh, and I, I, I deliberately didn't say class consciousness but the the understanding that um, and this is this is a kind of this is this is a, a, a point that lends itself incredibly well to, to, to kind of Marxist or, or leftist thinking about things is that you know we are not separate from anything that we are kind of entangled. Um, Simon Critchley, who's an anarchist writer I really like uses the term indebtedness that we are indebted to uh that's our kind of basic ontological condition right we are uh indebted to 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 those who who bring us up and we're just children so it makes sense that we have a kind of uh a need to but i think that's something that can be cultivated and i think your your analogy of of the mycelium of the of the mushroom colony that's that spores out is really effective and really powerful
2: well, I'm glad that it made a little bit of sense. <laughs> well, uh, I guess what else would um, I be doing if not uh, intentionally walking through liminal spaces and not fully explaining uh, what I'm doing or why I'm doing it? <laughs> I'm just that, uh, that massless uh, monster that's uh, talking about burning prisons, but also, isn't Beetlejuice a cool movie? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but this is the amazing thing. This is the thing which I I really love about this idea of the spooky left of about a kind of Gothic Marxism is that it, it takes what could so easily be dismissed as like detritus as rubbish as relics as ruins, and actually looks at it seriously and invests it with with both cultural and political meaning. So so those two things, those two things that that desire to tear down and burn every last prison with the fact that Beetlejuice is a really cool movie. Those two things are not are not uh, are both both informing one another. Right? That even in 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 the very trash of culture in the and I use trash in in no way in a pejorative sense. We can see. Uh, the potential of a better world, of, of a world that would be free, of a world that would be uh, that would be liberated from the nightmares that oppress it.
2: And uh, a friend of mine that I do, uh, or when I lived in Kansas City, I did uh, prison abolition work with uh, through the Anarchist Black Cross. Um, he summed it up as uh, as I guess succinctly as possibly he could, explaining to people um what his end goal of like when they say oh well if you're gonna let out all the prisoners what about the ones that deserve to be there and instead of playing that trope that some people are uh deserving of isolation and uh complete mental uh isolation and physical isolation instead of trying to rehabilitate people that have uh gone against social mores, or uh, been violently against uh, somebody else's autonomy that he would just say um, well the, the main goal of an- this anarchist black cross is to burn jails and grow kale mm. <laughs> but, and then he <laughs> then he realized how uh, clever of a statement that was so then he made like fundraising shirts of uh, burn jail grow kale Pop your
1: eyes there is it okay if I ask uh, a couple more questions? I, there's something oh, yeah. I, I was I was just wondering. Maybe maybe you could talk a little bit, Nestor, about the kind of practical side of, of like running a bail fund. What does that What does that look like? How How did you get into it? How does it work? Um, how can people listening to this uh, help get people out of jail?
2: Well, the uh, bail fund is uh, it's to get people that are most marginalized in a white supremacist capitalist society. So no matter who goes to prison or goes to jail, county lockup, um, you're at threat of any number of different uh, state violent um, acts. But uh, people are more prone to... um, like. Uh, Self harm and suicide within, like the first twenty four hours of being uh, put in jail, even if they don't have uh, those issues present when they before they were arrested. Um, so, getting people out as quickly as possible um, reduces that uh, possibility and just removes them from any sort of uh, uh, extra. Um, trauma that they might experience but running the the bail fund itself um it was uh I modeled it on the Chicago uh, bail fund because they have I think they're I don't want to say that they're a registered nonprofit but I think they are that might be incorrect so that with that comes like a lot of paperwork and you have to show your work and show uh like what it is you're doing um bit by bit. So there's a lot of data to pour over and check out and um, reading through it. It wasn't just uh, the immediate goal of getting people out of jail because uh, people that are out of jail uh, before their trial have a better chance of getting uh, a better plea deal or a better uh, outcome of their, their trial. So that's the uh, immediate midterm and then the long-term goal is ending cash bail which nobody should be paying ransom to get out of a cage which is really just ransom that's all
0: it is absolutely yeah. <clears throat> so yeah
2: the chicago Bell fund specifically um they their long-term goal was ending cash bail and i think on most misdemeanors now in chicago um, I don't have the data in front of me, so I can't rightly say all misdemeanors. But I think some there. Are, there's no uh, bail charge anymore. There's no cash bail, so you're let out on personal recognizance and given a trial date, which is how it should work. In I guess in a like a reformist sense, how it should work, because there's no reason why uh, people should take on a financial hardship because they were pulled over because of a taillight out or because they missed their court date because they had to be at work and now they have mm-hmm. a failure to appear uh, charge, which is higher than probably what they were going for in the first place. So it's just a, a self-replicating machine of abuse. Um, and the, the actual funding of the, the bail fund, um, I do through multiple ways, the podcast Black Banner Magic, um, that money through the Patreon goes to the Bell Fund. So I have fun talking about all these spooky concepts and uh, magically operant people and authors and uh, activists. But the uh, the support of the Bell Fund comes directly from the, the Patreon supporters of that podcast. So there's multiple ways to get the money that the state requires to get people out of jail without... Just being like a, a capitalist wealth hoarder, um, which if there are any capitalist wealth hoarders out there, you can definitely give to your uh, local bell fund and get people out of jail, you slime fuck.
1: <laughs> uh, one thing yeah Um, yeah yeah. well said (laughs) um one thing one thing um i found whilst doing um a little bit of reading up for this episode is the national bail fund network has a directory of local and community bail funds um for places all across the united states um that's going to be something that i make sure is in the show notes so that um not only should you support the work that nest is doing with uh black banner magic um you get an incredible show and you get to get and you get to help people get out of jail uh which i i can't think of anything better um we'll also make sure that uh, if you are a listener in the states you can find the bail fund that is nearest to you uh and hopefully support their work as well
0: one one question i would have uh re harvest goth right so i i'm like based on the way you're talking about i'm seeing a lot of like overlaps with like broad like broader left discourses about sustainability and the environment and kind of how we engage with these systems. And where do you see Harvest Goth huh, I like hashtag harvest goth <laughs> mindset fitting in with with like the rest of like the left um intentionally phrased ecosphere? Um
2: well I think that uh it sort of already exists um, tangen- tangentially in, uh, like, um, folk punk and crust punk uh, scenes. Already have mm-hmm. basically that same uh, mind frame of like the. Even though the crust punk kids or the folk punk kids, they're oftentimes not politically engaged themselves. They still listen to. Somewhat politically engaged in music, and it's just a matter of uh, making that connection, making that mycelium uh, connection there. Like, you, you already know these systems of control are fucked up, and like the cops are gonna be harassing you if you are out late and you look like you just craw- crawled out of a sewer. Um, but extrapolate that further like uh how can you avoid that? how can you resist that um that system uh, and it's not just putting some patches on your clothes and saying fuck this, fuck the state like <laughs> actually uh attacking the the functions of the state like how can you undermine and expand the contradictions that are already existent so i guess um People in the DSA go to a crust punk show, and people going to crust punk shows uh, join the Socialist Rifle Association and learn how to shoot a gun.
1: (laughs) Really, I think that's, I think that's a really important point, though, right? That if you are, if you're into that kind of thing, if you're into like the stuff that we talk about on this show, and maybe, maybe you've never. Uh, had to, or maybe you've never had the chance to really think about the kind of political structures that inform all of the stuff that you enjoy culturally. I think that's a really important uh, thing to take from this episode, that there is a direct connection between um, the kind of political structures of, the, of, of society and the stuff that you're into, as a, a, whether that be music or like spooky movies or uh, a- anything else that we've talked about on the show.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, and I would I would just add to that too. Like, you know, if you like, like, it's it's, it's kind of obvious. Like, you know, if if you if you are listening to like anarcho crust punk before you listen to the to the horror vanguard episode, you are definitely probably predisposed for a certain subset of politics, right? And then, like, like you know, fo- like just getting the uh, the follow through on that is is like the next logical step, right? but like I, I i would go one step further and say that like things things like horror movies and and things like these kind of like more sustainable aesthetics and right these goth aesthetics right they they necessarily exist at the periphery right like there's reasons why you know, a horror movie is derided as, as as a genre, and like it's only a rare occasion. And like every time when horror does something people like, they immediately have to start reinventing the wheel and be like, "Oh no, this is art horror this time, horror. or this is elevated horror." Yeah, yeah, th- this isn't this isn't horror anymore because we like it, right? There's a reason why this stuff has to be exiled and cannot be internalized by by the broader like um superstructure like the culture industry and stuff like that there's a reason why they can't internalize these bodies and that's because they're two degrees you know not not totally but but they contain within them like antibodies right right they're antithetical in a way to the overall structure of the system The horror movie defenders have logged on.
2: <laughs> when the, and there's a historical precedents like, old historical precedents like the, uh, the cunning men and cunning women of, uh, uh, England like the magical practitioners would live on the, the fringes of, the, towns or uh, villages, um, people that, would do that sort of, uh, like. Uh, community work for say like, Oh, I have, I have bad humors. So go to the, the person at the end of the, the village and the end of the settlement and the start of the, uh, mm-hmm. the wooded area and say, I, I need you to take care of this. Uh, you're the, the person to come to and they live out on the fringes because you only go to them if you need to, but they hold, uh, they hold social, um, social uh, well-being at arm's length but still uh, willing to or hoping to willing to be uh, helpful i don't know i was rambling for there
0: no i think i think that was um that that actually leads me on to a question that um i wanted to ask but i couldn't think of a way to phrase it until until you started bringing up um kind of like old old folk magic traditions right and that's um so you are from black banner magic the occult podcast uh how do you feel and how do you see like the, the things you've been talking about mycelium and the harvest goth how do you how do you see those things interacting and overlapping with the the other interest the other interests in like left occult oh, well the uh, uh
2: obvious ones would be just like herbalist um herbal magic uh, which is really just early forms of pharmacology and uh, like mm-hmm. the the mushroom mm-hmm. itself uh, it's a fungus just like yeast being a, uh, a bacteria that grows and uh, can be something that poisons you like uh, bad ergot poisoning or something that sustains you like bread mm-hmm. um, and the mushroom itself uh, as well um, it can be poisonous, it can uh, close up your windpipe and kill you, or it can be an entheogen and give you a hallucin- hallucinogenic uh, insight into your psyche. Um, so I think the those two, the, the yeast and the uh, mushroom, they exist on two planes where they can kill you or sustain you. Um, and the like mushroom uh, theory like the the idea that uh, mushrooms are not of this planet that they're here to teach us something else um, crazy uh, uh, Terrence McKenna theories about how the mushrooms are actually aliens here to <laughs> teach us ways but that's that's when you have to do like 50 DMT trips in a day to really <laughs> get on board with that one <laughs> but mushroom uh spores can survive the the vast expanses of space so he does have something like a kernel of uh scientific truth there but uh aside from that like the the occult uh magical perspective is it can be uh practical or it can be psychological like you can choose both uh like i said the the early pharmacology uh aspects of magic are they were once like oh we we don't know how this works but it works so it must be magic is now like proven like well here's the science of how this works and Mm -hmm. this is why you should take it it's no longer considered magic it's now it's just uh it's accepted medicine um but the the idea that there's a a difference between the two and not just like both existing at the same time is like i was mentioning earlier the the idea that nature and human nature are different and not
0: overlapping Brad, i dig (laughs) so so a follow-up to that i i would have uh, kind of like let's dig in briefly, I guess, sort of pseudo briefly into into like the left and the occult more broadly. Right. Because it, it occurs to me that there's probably like a non it's a not insignificant subset of people out there who associate the left with like strict materialism. So how do you as as someone who is like, you know, very thoroughly engaged in both of these right ventures right like you know the occult and like actual like physically e- extant in this world leftism so there can be no like confusion about about like your level of commitment at all so uh, so how do you see materialism and the left and the and the occult kind of either coexisting or perhaps like not well, I coexisting
2: a lot of times i'll i'll use materialism as a shorthand of like uh dogmatic belief in something that is, has data but is not a constant, like we haven't always known what gravity is, but we know that gravity is Mm -hmm. a thing that we can observe, like if I I'm holding my phone right now, if I drop it it's gonna fall, I know that it's not uh, something that I can dispute and say oh no, it's actually gonna float up or it's gonna stay static um so using materialism as that word like um it has some drawbacks because i'm not anti-materialist i like data is a verifiable repeatable thing but also uh, people that will say um a magical operant outlook or a cosmology is anti-materialist is weird because the it's not lab created I guess I don't <clears throat> I always get caught up in the, the definitions of trying to explain uh, the the similarities of materialism and uh, uh, phenomenology or uh, cosmology but like what sort of value system does a, a magical animist or even a satanist cosmology create and like how would how would I relate it to people in a positive manner? Like, would I just be a nihilistic anthrop- uh, misanthrope, or like actually use it to help people? Um, the there any sort of magic isn't a stand-in for action itself, but it, it provides a framework, and it can provide like a, a self-confidence boost or uh, a self centering, not a like a, a selfish self centering, but a self centering. Uh, grounding effect. And even in uh, sympathetic forms, it decenters a reliance on locked in place hierarchical orders. So it's, on one hand, it's like greatly freeing to know that I can call on the offices of hell or I can call on angels and speak directly to either <laughs> of them without having like a certain caste in the material world, like a, a caste system where I have to go through different levels because like right now a billionaire and a dirt farmer can both use magic, but it depends on what they're using it to do. Um, And I don't think anyone is like more qualified to make that decision than I like make my decision than I am. And that would sound maybe like a, an egoist or an individual stance, but it just, Means that I think uh, each of us can determine how we b- best use the ideas that we have, um, accomplishing goals from point A to point B.
1: Also, also, I think a kind of strict materialism is just a bit useless. I don't, I don't know. I I I think I think. Yes. I think yes and it does tend, it tends towards a kind of economic reductionism and determinism, which historically has been proven to n- not work. Uh, so. Right.
2: And, uh, Oh, now I, I completely spaced on his name. As soon as I started talking, <laughs> um, uh, I'll come back to that. Uh, but, uh, so like bringing the esoteric into the cerebral and the political, um, and, Using materialist frameworks uh, like data points those don't exist outside of consciousness because there's nothing that exists outside consciousness because if it did how could you perceive it and show data points that it does exist outside consciousness so I don't think they're separate or fighting against each other I don't think that uh, uh, Mm -hmm. spiritual or magical cosmology is in opposition to materialism Mm.
1: yeah absolutely couldn't agree
2: more oh I remembered who it was uh Isaac Newton he was an alchemist and uh an occultist and he also uh materially showed that when an apple falls from a tree it's gonna hit the ground so he'd had similar Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that I'm on par with uh Isaac Newton, but
0: he's.
2: Oh, no, you're clearly superior. Yeah, I think that's something I can all
0: agree on. No, yeah, and like I, you know, pet peeve of mine, but I think one of the one of the things that I always kind of like think about is this is, is the raw dichotomy between the strict materialism of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is the most like joyless person alive. And then, like, you know, a, a counterpart to that would be, like, you know, someone someone like Carl Sagan, who was was nevertheless, like, having emotions and, and thinking more broadly about existence and not just, like, dunking on movies <laughs> on Twitter.
2: Well, also, I don't think that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has ever done any mind-altering or expanding drugs like uh, Carl Sagan had
1: true Uh, yeah but uh, your mind size is limited by the circumference of your skull so there's no way that you could actually expand Uh, that's just (laughs) basic facts Uh, which is I mean I think that kind of crude materialism is just kind of helplessness before the facts and an inability to think in any way that might be kind of uh, creative or uh, imaginative because that can't be that can't be just turned into facts um, it, that kind of materialism, the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson rule of materialism is a sort of uh, anxiety about uh, contingency, about about change, about the, the, the kind of unquantifiable nature of existence. Yes. So
2: don't lock yourself <laughs> in Marx's tomb. Go yeah. outside and build upon it.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Although out of <laughs> all the
0: places to imprison yourself, the giant, uh, you know, <laughs> cast head of Marx
1: wouldn't wouldn't be the worst. Um, yeah, awesome. Yeah, a really good way of putting that. But uh, don't lock yourself in Marx's tomb. Although that would be goth mm-hmm. as fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's true. Is that is that possibly the spookiest <laughs> left way to go? It's like the right. cask of amontillado but with capital volume 4. <laughs> it's like the never-ending story but you don't come out of the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, capital volume 4 <laughs> the never-ending
1: story. <laughs> um, Yo, zing. So so I was thinking about what you were talking about with the kind of harvest goth idea. Um and as we kind of maybe start thinking about wrapping up, I wanted to share uh, what I think is an incredibly Harvest-Goth uh, piece of writing. Uh, have you come across Carl Sandburg's theme in yellow? Uh, I'm, it's, it's a poem by by Carl Sandburg, great leftist poet of the 20th century, and it goes like this. I spot the hills with yellow balls in autumn. I light the prairie cornfields, orange and tawny gold clusters, and I am called pumpkins on the last of october when dusk is fallen children join hands and circle round me singing ghost songs and love to the harvest moon i am a jack-o'-lantern with terrible teeth and the children know i am fooling
2: yes (laughs) that is that's the the story of saw the the harvest festival
1: yeah uh but as a way of tying together some of the things that you were talking about, I just thought that was really, uh, fitting and appropriate.
2: Last, uh, last Halloween. Um, I, I may have actually read that before. I just didn't, uh, recognize because I pulled it up and yeah, it looks uh, familiar because last Halloween I did, uh, a correlation between, uh, the idea of, the Jack-O-Lantern were the, the uh, folktale yeah. of the uh, Irishman that became the Jack-O-Lantern uh, because he sold his soul to the devil. Um, that with uh, Gritty being a representation of the Jack-O-Lantern. <laughs> um, I don't really remember where I was going <laughs> with that at the time, but I remember just being uh, enamored with Gritty like everybody else at that time last year. <laughs> but the uh the sandberg line i am the jack-o'-lantern with terrible teeth and the children know i am fooling
0: like that's gritty
1: Yeah, <laughs> it absolutely is it absolutely is
0: but i think as so as we're going out so for um i guess uh for our listeners who you know after this discussion might be more interested in like I know, I know the uh, the Harvest Goth uh, anti manifesto is forthcoming, and we will definitely be promoting mm-hmm. that like crazy uh, once that manifests. But for 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 people who are interested in learning more about like occult issues from a left perspective, uh, Nestor, I was wondering if there are any like sources or texts you you could recommend. I almost said sorcerers, <laughs> but if you can just straight up recommend us a couple sorcerers, oh, that would be great yeah, too. Uh...
2: So, there's some living sorcerers that would also be sources. Um, I guess, so, looking through uh, my PDFs real fast, um, I guess uh, one that I enjoy um, uh, would be uh, Gordon White's um, show, Rune Soup. He, uh, He lives in Tasmania, but he's been a Chaos magician since I think the like practicing since the early 90s um or maybe the late 90s I think he's maybe 40 years old so probably the late 90s um he d- he runs a a blog about um, various uh magical cosmologies not just chaos magic uh, he talks about um decolonial magic and uh, European magic and uh, how to use them in your life um, he does get a little liberal <coughs> but it's still a good uh, good <laughs> listen and a good read um, the uh, the New World Witchery uh, podcast um, they're a really good resource for uh, folk magic and folk stories in the US um, uh, Corey and uh, I, I forgot their names um, I apologize to them uh, but they, they also run a podcast and blog about uh, folk magic which is a really uh, in-depth read and listen um, I think Corey has a degree uh, a degree in uh, folk studies like uh, American folk studies uh, what else would there be? Um, the author, uh, Gary Lockman, who was also a founding member of the band Blondie, uh, he is a practicing magician <laughs> and an author. Uh, he wrote a recent book called uh, Dark Star Rising. It's about the occult uh, features of right wing politics and how they use it and how to recognize it and combat it from both a political and a magically operant, uh, viewpoint. So that one, that author would definitely suggest. Plus it's cool that the founding member of Blondie is a magician.
1: That is
0: incredibly cool. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that. And that is amazing.
2: Uh, what else? Let's see. Um, Oh, I'm reading, uh, Latour's, um, uh, Book on the modern cult of the factish gods, where uh, he goes into the idea of transposing facts as like uh, the end all and be all. Like, if it's a fact, then it cannot be changed, it's immutable. Um, Mm -hmm. That's obviously a very uh, simplistic way of describing the book. But uh, Bruno Latour, a great book on the modern cult of factish gods. So I would recommend that. Um, Oh, uh, the everybody knows the meme of, I guess, leftists in general know the meme of read the bread book. uh, Peter Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread. But Mm -hmm. I would suggest uh, other than that meme, um, his book uh, Fields, Factories and Workshops, which uh, amazingly, 130 years later, his takes on industrial farming still hold true uh he was talking about uh cattle over farming uh or overgrowth in 1888 when there were very few people running large industrial farms and he broke down uh, in dry math like if you have this many head of cattle you're going to have to grow this much acreage of wheat to feed this many cows and this much water and that's just a huge waste and here we are, one hundred and thirty years later, still doing that. So,
0: please read the farm book. So, so true. Yeah, Kropotkin, Kropotkin and Raklou both saw the writing on the wall with that one.
2: And I would say that's that would be a, a Harvest Goth uh, adjacent book because he's not only talking about the material conditions of farming over over farming, but also he's got the big. Boopy
0: beard. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. K- is Harvest Goth Daddy. That is for sure.
2: Um, other, other than that, I uh, don't have a huge uh, repository of resources. Um, I guess uh, join the the Weird Left Discord, and we have a giant uh, tome of uh, in our library, and just. Uh, resources for every type of magical, uh, praxis from astrology to, uh, uh, herbalism and ghosts and dreams and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll try and make sure that there is a selection of stuff in the, in the show notes for this that people can check out. Um, if, they have never come across some of these figures and some of these ideas before because i think you've given an amazing range of stuff there for people to dig into
2: follow me uh (laughs) i shit post on twitter as black banner pod um (laughs) the uh podcast is on libsyn so it's blackbannermagic.libsyn.com, mm-hmm. um, part of the Revolutionary Left Radio Federation. So if you go to revolutionaryleftradio.com, or maybe it's just Rev Left Radio. I don't even know the website. Revolutionaryleftradio.com. Uh, it, there's a link to the uh, um, the podcast there. And uh, donate to the Omaha Freedom Fund uh, via the either patreon or directly on the website for a one-time donation to help get people out of jail uh, Venmo cash app all of that stuff too. Um, you could get people out of jail and be a cool person and not have to worry that somebody is sitting in a cell with ransom.
0: Hell yes yeah we will we will have links to all of that and the coolest thing you can do is help get people out of jail. there is in fact there's nothing, nothing cool than that
1: than breaking people out of jail by uh paying the the and, and until the day that cash bail is abolished um and prisons can be torn down brick by brick there is nothing more goth than making sure that people spend as little time in uh the absolute hell of the carceral system as possible yeah thank you thank you
0: again for being our uh first uh two-time uh award-winning uh, guest, <laughs> uh, Nestor of Black Banner Magic. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Always appreciate speaking horrible. to the Spooky Boys.
0: Oh, what was that going on?
2: Oh, I said I always I, I always enjoy talking to the Spooky Boys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, we look forward to having you be our first
1: three-time guest sometime in
0: the future. We will absolutely, well, have... we will
1: absolutely be completing the Nestor trilogy. <laughs>
0: Well, maybe we can
2: can cap the trilogy on my side of the show. Oh, hell yes. Let's do it. Let's
1: let's pick up
0: the third volume of this over on your show. That
1: sounds amazing. I'm so
0: down for that. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay Stay. spooky.